So let's remain standing and read our scripture this morning. Acts 16, 6 through 10. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is God's word. You may be seated. You know, over the years, people have uh, posed many questions to me as uh, as their pastor. Sometimes it's of a biblical and theological nature. Sometimes much more personal or practical. Sometimes it's uh, personal to the point of embarrassment. But there's one question I've received much more frequently than others, and it, it usually sounds something like this. Pastor, how can I know God's will for my life? How can I discover God's will for my life? And I've asked the question on many occasions myself. Where should I go to school? Um, what career path should I pursue? Whom should I marry? Uh, where does God want me to serve in the church? Where does he want me to live? Should I go this direction or that direction? And, uh, you know, the questions just go on and on. In the Christian life, there's actually probably no more important question than than this for us to answer. For those who desire to live lives that are pleasing to God, lives that honor Him, lives that accomplish His purposes. Our text this morning not only chronicles the continuing westward advance of the gospel, but it also provides us with a model for discerning the will of God. And I say a model, not the model. Because uh, the Bible actually presents us with a variety of models or approaches by which we can gain understanding of God's will and our own appropriate response. So this is one. If you're visiting with us today, we're, we're working our way through the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament. We're taking our time with this. As you can see, we're just five verses this morning. It was five verses last week as well. We're not in a hurry. And we're trying to understand the fullness of what God wants to reveal to us in this uh, book of the Acts of the Apostles. So where we find the missionary team of Paul and Silas um, and Timothy today is that Paul and Silas had set out uh, from Antioch in Syria, north of Israel, um, on a northwesterly course across Asia Minor. And uh, if you're not familiar with ancient geography, Asia Minor is basically Turkey today. It's that part of the world, the northwestern part of the Mediterranean Sea region. They were on a road that the Romans had constructed. It was known as the Via Sebast. Uh, They crossed through the Roman province of Cilicia, which was uh, Paul's home province. He grew up in Tarsus which is the capital city of that province, or was in those days, uh, through Cilicia into the province of Galatia, where uh, in the cities of Derby and Lystra, the young man Timothy was added to the mission team. Uh, we saw that last week. From there, they continued on to uh, Iconium, and finally, after a 400-mile journey, 
they arrived in the city of Antioch, another Antioch in Pisidia, in the region known as Phrygia. Phrygia just sounds cold, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think it actually is in, in, uh, parts of the, parts of the year. Pisidian Antioch marked the, the westwardmost point of that road, the Via Sebast. Now, I know sometimes we get lost mentally when someone like me is throwing out these names of ancient places and cities, and we may as well be talking about places in Middle Earth, right? So uh, I get that, but but bear with me a little longer because what's what's important to the telling of the story is really not whether you can picture all the details or you can you have a mental map of the region, but but that you can perceive the dilemma that Paul and company encountered as is described in this text, when they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, uh, which is um, right about the center of Turkey today, which, which you may recall they had uh, visited earlier on their first journey between there and the Aegean Sea to the west, in the, the Roman province uh, was the Roman province of Asia. And so don't think China or Korea or Japan is not that Asia. It, it was the Roman province of Asia, um, which was basically all of Western Turkey today. Um, we could probably assume at this point that Paul's original intention may have been to just continue right on through Asia, at least as far west as Ephesus on the Aegean coast. Remember that he had a city-based strategy. He always went to the major cities. Well, why would we assume that, that Paul might continue right on through Asia? Because we know some things about Paul, among them, that as he later said in his letter to the church in Rome in chapter 15, verse 20 of Romans, his ambition had always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ had never been heard. Uh, so they might have continued on into Asia, but verse 6 of Acts 16 says they were forbidden, forbidden. And notice this, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by none other than the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And we're tempted to say, what? The Holy Spirit forbade them to share the gospel somewhere? And our next question would be, ought to be, why? And we could ask, what? Because we remember that Jesus had given the commission to his own disciples in Matthew twenty-eight twenty to make disciples of all the nations. And again, he had said to them, following his resurrection from the dead, just before he ascended into heaven, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, not only those places, but to the uttermost parts of the earth. Back in chapter 9, we heard the Lord Jesus saying about Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. And Paul had heard about the Great Commission. He understood his personal calling. Pisidian Antioch was surely beginning to feel to all three of them, Paul, Timoth- uh, Paul Silas, and Timothy, like the uttermost parts of the earth. But now the Holy Spirit has forbidden them to speak the word, to preach the gospel in the Roman province of Asia. And so we ask, why? Why? And all we hear is the creak and the thud of a giant door 
being closed. And following that, silence. Silence. No explanation is given. No explanation to them. No explanation to us. And not knowing what else to do, they continued on to the southwest was that province of Asia. To the northwest was the unincorporated territory of Mycia. And directly to their north was the Roman province of Bithynia. Beyond Bithynia was the Black Sea. And they thought they might go into Bithynia, but they were disallowed. Disallowed. Notice verse 7. When they had come up to Mycia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the spirit of who? Spirit of who? Jesus. The spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And again, we ask, why? I mean, didn't the residents of Mycia and Bithynia need the gospel? Yes, they did. Weren't they in need of the love and mercy of, and grace of God? Yes, they were. Didn't they need to hear the message that God had sent a Savior into the world to solve the problem of their sin and separation from him. Of course. But as the late great pastor and Bible teacher J. Vernon McGee once said, a need does not necessitate a call. A need does not necessitate a call. There is a crying need everywhere for the good news of the gospel to be made known. Paul, Silas, and Timothy tried, they attempted, King James said they assayed, that's quite a word, to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. They had come so far. They had such grand dreams and intentions and ambitions, but again, all they heard was the enormous thud of a giant door closing in their faces. Now, we don't know how the Holy Spirit communicated to them that they were forbidden from speaking the word of God in Asia or how the Spirit of Jesus disallowed them from entering Bithynia, even though they tried. It's not explained at all. But somehow they knew on both occasions, that it was God who was closing the doors. And we can only speculate. I I imagine that God may have used some strong inward impression that they all felt and they all experienced. It may have been that the Spirit of God spoke through Silas himself, whom we learned in chapter 15 was a prophet. Their way into Bithynia may have been blocked by some external circumstances beyond their control, which they collectively interpreted and attributed to the leading of the Spirit. We simply do not know. But I think you'll agree with me that they had to have been perplexed, to say the least. And they must have engaged in some intense prayer asking God to reveal to them his plan and his purpose. But all they received from God was forbidden, disallowed, and then silence. You ever been there? Seems like uh, all the doors are closing around you. None of the avenues that make sense to you are open to you. 
It's in times like that that we need to remember the wisdom that's contained in a passage like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Familiar passage to many of us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. So I imagine them standing there on the road that led further to the west out of Pisidian Antioch, between Mycenae to the south, Bithynia to the north, between a rock and a hard place in the middle of nowhere with no GPS signal. To the east was the road back home. It was open to them. They they could have turned and, and just gone back home. To the west was another 360-mile journey on another road to the North Aegean coast. Lord, what would you have us do? Where would you have us go? And then silence. Crickets. Well, here's an insight. In that moment, what do you think? Would either Paul or Silas or Timothy have said, God's not directing our paths? I don't think they would have said that. I think they were still trusting him. They they weren't leaning on their own understanding, but they didn't understand. They didn't know yet where he was leading them but they were still acknowledging his leadership. They were able to affirm that it was the Holy Spirit who had forbidden them from speaking the word in Asia, that it was the Spirit of Jesus who closed the door to them in Bithynia. When God said no, they recognized it as every bit as much a part of his leadership as when he said yes. When God was silent, they wisely and humbly referred back to what God had previously revealed to them about his will for them and through them. And that's why in verse 8, we find them persevering, persevering. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. What does it mean that they passed by Mycenae? Well, the obvious thing is geographically, it means that they went around Mycenae. Metaphorically, it means that they took ministry in both Mycenae and Bithynia off their list. They, they crossed it out on their list of destinations. They, they took it off the table in terms of their options. They took a pass on any attempts in, at ministry there. They put it behind them and they moved on. Would, would that have been something of a disappointment for a guy like Paul? I think so. Uh, most likely, did they cast themselves completely on the Lord in, in submission to his will? I think so. Did they do some pretty serious soul work at that time? I think they probably did. Here's what they didn't do. They didn't sit down in the middle of the road, put on sackcloth, and sit in the ashes. They didn't have a pity party. They didn't let that stop them. They knew that God had called them that opportunity awaited them, that that inaction was not an option for them. Someone once said, just because you missed your train, it doesn't mean you have to cancel the whole vacation. So what did they do? They persevered. They, They just kept going in the direction that God had called them at first to go. 
trusting that it would be on that journey of obedience that God would eventually speak and give them further direction. The Old Testament writers call this waiting on the Lord. So they went out to the coast, arrived at the north coast of the Aegean, northwest coast of the, or northeast coast of the Aegean, and, and then down the coastline to Troas. And it was while they were there that God spoke and they were again called. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So a vision appeared to Paul in the night. It may have been their first night in Troas. It may have been another night. We're not told how long they were there. But what we're reminded of is that God sometimes, supernaturally, leads some people through dreams and visions. I don't know about you, but but I sometimes wake up knowing that I've had some really vivid dreams and be able to remember just a few little things. But, uh, but for the most part, I can't remember them. My wife, on the other hand, gives me a play-by-play of her dreams and remembers them well. But for all of us, each of us, some dreams just have a way of standing out. God sometimes speaks to us in dreams. And what is essential on those occasions is that we submit what we think God has said in the dream to the scrutiny of the Scriptures. Does what I think God said to me square with what he has already said with authority and with finality in his word? See, God will never contradict himself. Neither is he the author of confusion. On this occasion, I think we can be confident that these men who made up the mission team had been praying, they had been seeking the Lord, they were waiting on the Lord, they were asking for and anticipating his further leadership. And in Paul's vision, he sees this man of Macedonia urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul shared that dream with the others. It says that they concluded that God had called them to preach the gospel in Macedonia. Just think about that. You know, wow, funky dream, Paul. What have you been eating? You know? But they were anticipating that God would lead them. Because I knew that that's what God does. God is not silent forever. So we might ask on what basis, though, that they came to that conclusion. Might might it not have been possible that Paul's vision was, was merely the product of some bad fish and chips he'd eaten the night before? Maybe it was just Paul being Paul, visualizing, because he was a, a visionary, visualizing an opportunity on the other side of the sea on whose shore they now stood. Paul was 
wise. He wasn't one who would arrogantly trust in his own judgment in the matter. He consulted with the others. He submitted himself to the team. And the word translated concluded there describes a coming together of hearts and minds, a a weaving together of thoughts and ideas, to the end that everyone finally gets on board with one conclusion and one course of action. Together, they wrestled with it. Together, they connected the dots. I'm sure they asked questions like this. How has God led us in the past? What, what did he tell us we were supposed to be doing? What has he commanded us? What has he already forbidden and disallowed? How has he redirected us before? What opportunities are now before us? And Proverbs 11:14 says, where there is no guidance of people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. And the caveat to that probably is that the counselors in question need to be wise and godly counselors. And on this occasion, the missionary team concluded together that God was calling them to preach the gospel in Macedonia, that the vision, the dream was from God. And so they sought to go to Macedonia, which if you were to draw a line, it would be a diagonal line from the southeast coast of the Aegean Sea to the northwest coast of the Aegean Sea. They began to make travel arrangements. They sought passage on a boat that would carry them across the Aegean Sea. And notice the time markers with me. They sought to go into Macedonia, one, when Paul had seen the vision, not before, but when Paul had seen the vision. And secondly, Luke says, immediately. They wasted no time. They they moved promptly into action. Now, before we get into some application of this, I, I just want to point out three footnotes that uh, if I ignore them, I'll feel that I've shortchanged you, and I don't want you to miss, first of all, Luke's inclusion of the activity of all three persons of the Godhead in revealing God's will to Paul and his team. In verse 6, the, it's the Holy Spirit who forbids them to preach the word in Asia. In verse 7, it's the Spirit of Jesus who did not permit them to enter Bithynia. And in verse 10, it is God who calls them to make Christ known in Macedonia. There's clearly a whole lot of theology to unpack there, which which I don't have time to do. But simply know this, we make a mistake when we try to understand the activity of each of the three persons of the Godhead too distinctly from each other. God the Father... God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, each and all are interested and active in leading us to discern and discover his will for our lives. And we might just think of this, that that from the time of Jesus' ascension into heaven and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, 
The Spirit is stamped with the character of Jesus. Luke refers to this Holy Spirit at at verse 7 as the Spirit of Jesus. It's the only place in the whole New Testament where it's said that. But, But you remember that Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room, as he's telling them what's about to happen, he said, I will not leave you alone. I will come to you. I will be with you and I will be in you. And that's why we're able to say that, that when, when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives, we're able to say, I, that Jesus comes into our hearts. I remember as a kid thinking, I got this little man somewhere in my aorta, you know, that, that and he's running around in there. Got a little candle, a little table, a little food. And that expression is not found in the Bible asking Jesus to come into your heart, but, but the truth of it is, there in the scriptures that the Holy Spirit takes up resonance. And and Jesus said, that's me. That's me. I will come to you. I will be with you. I will be in you. Second footnote is from verse 10. Notice the, the personal pronouns Luke uses. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And prior to this point in the book of Acts, all the book of Acts, the pronouns have been they and them as Luke is telling this story. At verse 10 and moving forward, it's we and us. And so we know that it's at Troas that Dr. Luke, who is narrating this book of the Acts of the Apostles, joins the mission team for the very first time. He still doesn't mention his own name at all. Keeps himself completely in the background. But from this moment forward, Luke is not not along merely as a journalist or a historian, but as a member of the team. It may be that he was kind of the doctor on the team. In the years that followed, Luke remained close by Paul's side so that much later, when Paul's in prison in Rome, he was able to write, only Luke is with me. Close relationship established. Third footnote has to do with the observation that the Bible commentators seem to enjoy making a whole bunch of, which is that by crossing the Aegean Sea, Paul and company are actually crossing over from the continent of Asia into the continent of Europe. So that the gospel would be heard for the first time on that continent. And it's an interesting observation, but but I hardly think it crossed the minds of any of the team members. Hey, we're going to Europe. Partly because all of the land on either side of the Aegean Sea at the time was just the Roman Empire. And second, because it wasn't the head of the European Union that appeared to Paul in that vision. It was simply a man of Macedonia. So the view from 20,000 feet 2,000 years later seems preoccupied with that strategic element of the entry of the gospel into Europe. But the view on the ground and and uh, the view from the heart of God is always for people whom he loves and for whom Christ died. There's probably a fourth one here, and some of you are quietly asking, what about those people in Mycenae and Bithynia? 
Did they get bypassed? Did, did God have a plan for them? Did they ever receive the gospel? And, and we find at least a hint in the first verse of the first letter of the Apostle Peter where he wrote, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, listen now, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Paul, or Peter is writing to Christian Jews, what we'd say today, say today, Messianic Jews, Jewish believers in Jesus in each of those places, including Asia and Bithynia. Proverbs 69 says, And in his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Paul had a plan, but I think Paul, in spite of the fact that he was so driven, he, he still held those plans loosely always submitted his plan to the plan of the sovereign God who had another plan for those in Asia and Bithynia. He was going to use someone else to take the gospel to them at another time. It may have been Peter himself. Later, Paul would write to the Romans, those who are led by the Spirit, those who are led by the Spirit, are the sons, the children of God. Well, what, what can we learn from this brief passage for our own lives? It's a great story, right? How, but how can we apply it? Allow me to suggest five applications. They're, they're written plainly there in your program this morning. But the first that is that each of us needs to learn to receive the gift of a closed door. And maybe a way of restating that is each of us needs to recognize a closed door as a gift when it's God who closed it. See, in the walk of faith, there is no sound so difficult for us to get used to than the creak and thud of God closing a door. Most of us can name specific places and times in our lives when we've heard that sound. And ironically, it sometimes comes on the heels of a commitment that we have made to greater obedience in our lives when we perhaps have sought the godly counsel of others when we've engaged in prolonged periods of prayer when when maybe we've received a fresh filling with the spirit and we come to a place where where we feel confident that we're in the center of the will of God doing what God has called us to do and then slam the door just abruptly and without warning, shuts in our faces. And, and even more difficult can be the silence that, that often follows the closing of that door. And we ask, where are you, God? Are you still there? Are you still thinking about me? Do you still have a plan for me? Do you, do you intend to use me in any way? Where are you, God? The 19th century Scottish writer, historian Thomas Carlyle wrote that when the oak tree is felled, the whole forest echoes with it. But a hundred acorns are planted silently by some unnoticed breeze. When the oak tree is felled, the whole forest echoes with it, but a hundred acorns are planted silently by some unnoticed breeze. See, when a door slams in our face, we often don't think quite that poetically, do we? All we can hear is the falling of our oak and the thud as it hits the forest floor. 
destroying our dreams, our hopes, our anticipations. We rarely think at that moment that there are a hundred, perhaps a thousand, perhaps more acorns being whisked away to a place where they will grow and where they will bear fruit for God's glory through some other open door. We rarely think at those moments, this is going to lead me to something better, do we? A relationship that seems so promising comes to an end. A job that you loved becomes subject to budget cuts and layoffs. A home you hope to purchase gets bought out from under you at a price higher than you could ever have afforded. The health that you hope to enjoy in your retirement years is taken away from you and your your hopes and your dreams are dashed. You serve God. You set aside time daily to, to read and study His Word. You, you choose obedience each day. You, you attend a, a small group Bible study. You, you're committed to fellowship. You even tithe of your income and still doors that you hope will remain open keep just shutting in front of you. We don't like closed doors. They humble us. They frustrate us. They can sometimes make us feel like failures. Christian culture today would say that that God is just opening doors willy-nilly all the time for some people, and sometimes it seems that way. That's why when when a door closes, what's needed most is A heavy exposure to God's Word. What's needed most is sound theology. And one of those first points of theology that we need to get in touch with is the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. In Daniel 4.35, we read, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? The psalmist wrote in Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Second, we need to surrender, I think, to the reality that that we are often unable to understand why he does much of what he does. God himself spoke through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55, verse 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In Revelation 3, 7, we read that God is the one who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. He is the potter, we are the clay. He is the sovereign Lord, we are his servants. When we offer our plans to him, we find him not only to be our, our all-powerful God, but our all-wise all, our all wise guide. He rarely explains himself. In fact, we may not know the reasons why God closed a particular door until after the passing of many years and we look back. If ever, if ever, most of us have never considered a closed door to be a gift and a blessing. 
But often instead we perceive the closed door to be a curse and not a blessing and so secondly reject the temptation to curse the door. See, God's closed doors in the lives of his children are intended for blessing. We sometimes forget that promise in the latter half of the passage I read just earlier in verse 6 of Proverbs 3, He will make straight your paths at the end of the day. One of the reasons that we consider a closed door to be a curse and not a blessing is that we want to be in absolute control of our own paths. Isn't that right? We really want to be in control of the direction and the pace and the the results of our journey. And that's why you're running your head into the wall on the right, running your head into the wall on the left. And all the while, God's spiritual GPS is shouting to you, rerouting, rerouting, rerouting. You know, years ago, I was on, when I was on staff at Westwood Baptist Church, we were, we were in that process of moving from the church at the corner of Division and Bowman on the west side of Olympia over to the new property on Kaiser Road. Calvary Chapel of Olympia had been meeting in a school, just like LifePoint used to meet in a school. They were eager to get into their own building. And there was some delay, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but but I had to call Chuck Lynn, the pastor of Calvary Chapel, about some other matter. And, a, and I just felt led in the course of that conversation to say, Gee, Chuck, I'm so sorry about the current delay. As if I had anything to do with it, you know. It was beyond our control. I'll never forget what Chuck said that day. It was so wise. He simply said, Jim, who knows what God is protecting both of us from? God's closed doors in the lives of his kids are intended for blessing. And we sometimes forget that promise, don't we? When God closes a door in your ministry, in your career, in your relationships, when he puts a roadblock in your path, when it seems like the detour is taking more time, more resources than than you wanted to invest, when you want to make progress, but it seems like you're mired in the mud, do not curse the door. Instead, give thanks and glory to God that he is in sovereign control, that he knows you better than you know yourself, that he loves you infinitely more than you can possibly imagine, that he knows the end from the beginning, that he's infinite in his wisdom and he is directing your paths. Third, recognize that it is not your door. It's not yours. Sometimes God closes a door simply to get our attention and and we run headlong into the closed door and instead of contemplating the, the closure, we complain and we curse the door. And we go on to social media and share with the whole world how much it hurt when we ran into that door hoping, hoping that we'll get lots of comfort from others. 
We ask all our friends to pray that God will open the door to us, but God is saying, I'm not opening that door, not now, not ever. That door is not your door. Doors that may open to others may not open to you. Remember what Paul said, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Can you imagine what might have happened if Paul and company had cursed the closed doors in Asia and Bithynia? What if they had willfully just thrown their full weight against that door and blown through it? Could God have met them there and even used them there on the other side? I think so. I think he could have, even would have. But I don't think they would have experienced the the fullness of blessing or joy. Why? Not, not because God is spiteful, but because of their disobedience, they would have put distance between themselves and God. And they wouldn't have kept the other appointment that he was waiting for them. When the door's shut, don't try to kick it in. God's got a plan for your life. A closed door, again, is a blessing when you come to terms with the fact that the sovereign God of the universe, the creator God, is orchestrating your life and the entire flow of, for that matter, of, of history to his appointed ends. Fourth, refer to the first question. What do I mean by that? When God closes a door, we often find ourselves asking, what is God's will for my life? But the first question we need to ask is not, what is God's will for my life? The question we need to ask first is, what is God's will? The will of God did not begin with you. The will of God did not begin with me. It's not about us. And our greatest problem is not in knowing the will of God, it is instead our nagging, self-serving attempts to bend God's will to our own. Before we can discern the specific as of yet unrevealed will of God for uh, our day-to-day lives, we need to become familiar with and submit ourselves to what He has already revealed in His Word. Don't wait for God to whack you up alongside the head or smack you on the bottom or send you a personalized note. Instead, find out what God's will is from His Word. Find out where He's working. Join Him there. I heard a black preacher the other day said, Get in where you fit in. In His will. And when he reveals his specific will for our lives, he most often does so one day or one step at a time. And that's why you and I will not know what doors even exist, what doors may be open or closed until we arrive there. One of the most chilling scriptures in in Acts to me is when God says to Ananias, I'm going to show Saul all that he must suffer for my name. <laughs> it's like, that's too heavy a load, God. Don't, don't do that to me. I prefer the day by day approach because I'll check it out. 
And here's the reality. If God wants to open a door to you, it's his door. It won't matter how tightly locked, chained, barricaded that door may be. All the powers of hell will be unable to close it. In Revelation 3.8, Jesus speaks to the church in Philadelphia, and he says, Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Finally, redirect to the place and time of further guidance. Redirect to the place and the time of further guidance. You say, we don't know what that is exactly. Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone, is quoted as having said on one occasion, when one door closes, another one opens. But we often look so long and so regretfully upon the closed door that we do not see the one that has opened for us. See, if Paul and company had stopped outside of Pisidian Antioch, if they'd given up or they'd gone back the way they came, they might never have arrived at that place of revelation, They, which, which according to God's plan and purpose was Troas and not until Troas. Paul may never have received the vision. They may never have discerned the call of God. Years ago, I heard a quote. I don't know who first said it. Never doubt in the darkness what God has shown you in the light. Never doubt in the darkness what God has shown you in the light. When you're confused where there seems to be no light, where there seems to be no direction, refer back to what God has previously revealed. Remember what he's shown you in the past about his will and his, his will generally, his specific will for your life, for your ministry, for your function, and keep doing that thing or those things until he opens another door and shows you what he has for you next. And then step through that door, which no one can shut with courageous obedience. See, it won't always make sense to you. It may stretch you in ways you don't want to be stretched. It may put constraints on you that you'd rather not submit to. It it may end up costing you more than you want to give, but along the way, here's what you're going to experience. You're going to experience growth. You're going to experience increasing stability in your walk with God. You're going to experience increased fruitfulness, and you're going to experience increased blessing. And at the end of the road, when all is said and done, exceedingly great joy. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Minister it, I pray, by your spirit to each of our lives according to your purpose for this time, for this day. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.